0: This is episode number 63 with Tony Stubblebine of The Founder Podcast.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 Now, the Founder Podcast, even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, hope you're having an epic day. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia and I am your host of the Founder Podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest. His name is Tony Stubblebine and he is the founder of Coach.me. Now, Coach.me was actually... uh, It was originally an app called Lyft, and uh, it was, I guess, I don't know, hard hard to explain, but Tony kind of merged and and what was Lyft uh, into into coach.me, and I'm loving what these guys are doing. It's a really, really cool service, and uh, Tony shares so much gold with us around uh, mentorship, coaching, why it's important, why you need it and uh his challenges as a startup founder now tony is a big time dude out of silicon valley he knows uh quite a few influential entrepreneurs he's worked at Odeo, o'reilly media which has some very very big time startups out of silicon valley so yeah he's a very very smart guy and uh He's hanging out with some very, very smart founders and entrepreneurs, and uh, he's a super smart guy himself. And uh, there's so much to take away from this interview. But uh, I'm just let's just jump into it, guys. I'm not gonna ramble on. Let's just do this. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you are enjoying these podcast episodes, please do leave us a review. It helps more than you can imagine. It would be very, very, very. Appreciated if you leave us a review in iTunes and also don't forget to tell your friends I forgot that one but uh, yeah don't forget to tell your friends speak soon now let's jump into the show thank you so much for taking the time the first question I ask every one of our guests is how'd you get your job
1: I oh, hey. you know people talk about career ladders and I think what's funny about my job is the CEO job is the one job that you can just give yourself like anyone can just say, oh, I'm a CEO now and I'm running this company. I'm the CEO of my lemonade stand. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of tongue in cheek, but that is how I got the job is that I was tired of working for other people and I wanted to do my own thing. And so one day I said, well, hey, you know, I'm a programmer originally. I know how to build software. Why don't I build some software and start selling it to people? And, you know, predictably, I was terrible at it and, you uh, most people didn't want my software, and the people that did get it were kind of um, frustrated by how well it worked, but or how well it did not work. But over time, I just uh, you know kept building things and building things for other people. So you're doing consulting. Then, you know that's interesting. I'm curious, like how you approach that first company. So this company I'm doing right now, Coach Stepping, I would consider it the third product that I've founded. The mm-hmm. first one had no investors. This one has really big name investors. So that first one, you're like on your own. Nobody believes in you. You don't have a lot of experience. And the way that I funded it was first, I just took a couple of months to build stuff on my own. And then I found a couple of customers. And then I found one really big customer that would almost pay me as a consultant, but it was based on the software. So it's like kind of White labeling your software often turns into a big consulting project as you add features to that software for them. Mm. And so for the first two years of that first company, the company was called Crowdvine, for the first two years, half of our revenue was coming from just a, a handful of really big clients who were basically treating us as consultants. What other strategies do people use for that first company? Because I feel like that's actually a really good one
0: yeah yeah no that's uh that's a really good question like right now you know founder is my first company and right. uh we're going be running it for two and a half years and it it is very difficult to work out how to get your first customers especially when you don't know the space and you've got to right. make yourself an influencer you've got to make yourself an expert uh, you've got to make yourself an authority you've got to build that trust so i'm curious with this first company How'd you get your first customers? Like your first, you know, well, your first big customers that you speak of, and then I guess what happened to it, and, and how'd how you wind up? Like, let's let's find out how, how you wound up doing Coach Me and, and uh... yeah.
1: So I built a version this in the Crowdmind days. I built a version. The idea was the idea that I had was that I was going to build a way for anyone to create their own social network. This is actually almost pre-Facebook. More people were thinking about MySpace back then. The, oh, wow. The idea this was like 10 have, years ago. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like a while ago. 2007, I think, is when I launched it. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you could kind of create a mini-Facebook for like your company or for your, for your conference or something like that. And the way that I got first customers, I mean, I just almost lucked into it everyone I met, I asked them, hey, would you want to use this for, and then I would make up whatever reason I thought was most appropriate to them. And I kind of stumbled into using it for conferences and the use case of the conference was actually really powerful because most people go to a conference and they want to network, but they don't know anyone there. And mm. so if you kind of get all the attendees, it becomes this hyper-active attendee directory, basically. And then when you show up, having seen everyone's faces and Connected with a lot of people. And then, when you walk into the, like the cocktail hour, you're like, "Oh, I recognize that person. I want to talk to them about this." Or you know, you just know immediately who you want to talk to, and it's just a lot more social.
0: So, yeah, wow.
1: So we did that. We you know we we got a couple trial conference customers, and then tried to sell it to more and more conference customers. And then along the side, we had you know one or two customers that were like trying to create a social network for scientists or a social network for, for programmers. And so we were doing that contract work on the side, which I thought, like I have a lot of friends that work on just any contracting project in order to fund the thing that they really loved mm. doing, like kind of the product that they're trying to build. And mm. I really like combining that contracting with the product. Cause it just like the product did get better along the way. And that's how we were able to make some money. And we did that. That company was alive for four years. And it followed this trajectory that I've seen a lot of bootstrap companies take, which are is that the first three or four years are just brutally hard. I feel like no one really understands what brutally hard means. So I just, I like I started to say, like, this is what, I made, how much money I made. So I was living in the Bay Area and I think for three years in a row, I reported less than $25,000 to the IRS, wow. which like, you know, like my, my salary at Google would be like 250, you know, mm-hmm. 10 times that. Yeah. And um, at, at least, back then that probably about what that, it would have been. So I was really leaving a lot of money on the table, but I was doing something that I loved and I wanted to, to learn how to be a founder and then this is the key though is that that period where you're grinding it out eventually you become profitable and once you're profitable then you're on easy street because you can hire people to do the job for you you don't have to work as hard it just like like all of the the strain of the first couple of years goes away so in year 4 i was working on it maybe a day a week at a team of a couple of people that were running the whole thing for me and i had enough money that I was then splitting my time between San Francisco and New York. So pretty comfortable lifestyle business at that point. Then I had to face this real tough question, which I wouldn't have predicted was going to be tough, which is, do I like leisure? You know, like when you're you're an entrepreneur, I think a lot of us dream, like we want to be able to set our own hours. And here I'd like actually achieved it. I had plenty of time to myself and I, I just hated it. I just like, I really didn't. I wanted to work on something. I wanted to work hard. Does that make sense to you? I mean, like, um, can you imagine just like retiring and like sitting on the beach for years on end?
0: <laughs> Tony, you don't not understand how much this story resonates with me, man. Because the one of the reasons I started Founder was because I read, you know, Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Workweek. Who, who I know you know well. He's one of the investors yes. in Coach Me. And that kind of got me excited, and then I built this business, which is founder, and it became a lifestyle business. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I, could, I could work whenever I want. But then after that, you just, you want to build so much more. Like you, it's just not enough. You know what I mean? Right. And I, so I, I, totally get it. Um, that this resonates with me really, really. well. So please keep going.
1: I think you, you really, as a founder, you really get addicted to the impact that you have on the world. I mean, you have this yeah. opportunity to have this really big impact. But we were talking before we started recording about should we talk about the successes or the failures? And so for me, I actually kind of almost look at this company as the, a huge failure. And this is a lesson that I, I wish other people would learn or that I could teach other people, which is in that fourth year, you know, I realized two things about myself. One, I want to work. So mm-hmm. then I'm looking at this company that's like 100% selling software to conferences at that point. Mm-hmm. And I had to ask myself, do I want to reinvest my time in this company? Essentially, do I want to become the world's expert in conferences? And the, the answer was a resounding no. <laughs> I have no interest in that. And so now I'm looking at that four-year period where, I mean, look, there was a ton of personal growth. I'm a completely different person after that than I was going into it. I'm looking at that four-year period and saying like basically for three years I went to work every day with one thought which was I will not let this fail. I mean essentially my pride was just wrapped up in making it work and then once I made it work I was just left thinking why on earth did I build software for conferences? This is not my life's work at all mm. and so that was the real re-evaluation that led me in, towards towards me. is that the thing that I care about is elite performance and honestly i could care less what genre we're, we're talking about i'm a sports fan I'm a fan of entrepreneurs but i got you know i could get hooked in a show like project runway which is about what it takes to be a great fashion designer to me all of those things are the exact same thing like what habits what skills what insights what talent do you need to be an elite performer in any field for a long time, I've known like that is the thing I'm most interested in. I'm always, that's what I'm reading about all the time. And so I looked at CrowdMind. I was like, man, I have to walk away from this and do something that's really authentic to me. And, that, and that's what I decided to do. And that's, I think, how, how we met is you used the, the first product that I did in, the, in that space, which was a goal-tracking community called Lyft. Did did you did you use that back when we first launched?
0: Yeah, so like since I read the four hour work week, it took me a while to start my own business, which is founder. And uh, I saw Tim; he did a post on it. Um, this might be right. interesting feedback. Yeah, he did a post on it, and uh, I downloaded it straight away.
1: He is one of the best investors of all time. I just I love being involved with him. He's so helpful at every level. I mean, one he, he gave us money, but he also Gave great business advice. And then he'll do, about once a year, we'll collaborate on some project together. And it will drive a ton of traffic and be really fun and interesting and just a big win-win for both of us. So that first company, Crowdvine, that was bootstrapped. meaning We had no investors. But I live in Silicon Valley. I've worked for startups. I have all of these connections here. And I felt like I should at least consider getting investors the second time around. So I started playing with this idea of gamifying your life. I thought, well, like imagine if there was no inertia, if you said like my goal is to run every day and then you ran every day and oh, there was no negotiation with yourself, there was no struggle to it, you just did the work. So I wanted to try and gamify my life that way and that's, that was, I had a prototype of something that became Lyft and I went out to coffee with a friend, my friend Evan Williams who used to be my boss but he was most well-known for being the founder of Twitter and now Medium and way back in the day the founder of Blogger, he basically one of the best serial entrepreneurs in tech. Mm. And he had just left Twitter, and I don't know what happened if like I'm the only person that invited him to coffee, but I did. I, we went out for coffee, and I showed him this prototype, and he's like, you know what? We should do this together. Let me invest, and I'll, I'll help design the first version with you. And so that's what we did. That's where Lyft came from, and it was—I uh, know—it was kind of an amazing group of people that, that came together at the start. And we mentioned Tim Ferriss. Tony Robbins was also an investor. Oh wow! Uh, David Allen from Getting Things Done. Oh yes. like real, like big names from self improvement.
0: Yeah, productivity guys.
1: Yeah, it is kind of the who's who of productivity. I think the only person that we couldn't get that we wanted was like oprah like i kept people say kept saying who do you want to intro to and i was like i want to intro to
0: oprah Uh, oh i got a story about that man have you met her i haven't met her but her team contacted us to do an interview and i was really keen to interview her but you know she had times very very as you can imagine and uh i kind of tried to wangle Because she does a lot of stuff with Deepak Chopra, and I was like, okay, we can do it. We can do like a joint, you know, front cover with Deepak and Oprah. And they said yes to it, but then we only got Deepak at the end of it.
1: Oh, only too bad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, only. But yeah, that yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I lucked out on Oprah too. (laughs) Uh,
1: Oh man, she is amazing. I would love. I mean, I would love to pick her brain on business. Do you oh, know? I
0: know. that Exactly, yeah.
1: What does she know about creating a media empire? She has been just, just so effective at that. So anyways, we started this company, Lyft, and it was like semi-successful, but not like breakout successful. And so at some point, we really just had to face, you know, come to grips with that and say, well, listen, like we're in the right ballpark, but we're not in the ballpark. We have to change, but this is where, like, going back to lessons learned. I know what my life's work is now, and so I'm not like I'm, I would never go from goal tracking to photo sharing, right? Like a lot of entrepreneurs are just sort of throwing spaghetti on the wall trying to see what sticks. Yeah. but I'm like I know every day what I'm when I wake up. I'm going to be working on self improvement in some fashion, and uh, I just I find that very reassuring, just because. The, the job is so stressful because you don't know the outcome. You don't know if your company is going to go out of business. You know, especially for us at Lyft, we were a hundred percent dependent on our investors because we weren't making any money. How do you feel? Do you talk much about the stress of being a founder?
0: Yeah, I do. And I really try and touch on it a lot when I'm when I'm speaking to other founders and doing interviews because I think it's it's such like nobody really talk like people do talk about the dark side of entrepreneurship, but not as much right. as they should. Like I couldn't even imagine, you know, we, like we're one hundred percent bootstrapped as well, and we've been profitable, yeah, pretty much since the early days. But we're not playing as no probably bigger scale as you are. But right. I'm really curious, you know, how did that feel to know that you know you went from a, your first company to being a profitable startup and. And you know, now with Lyft you weren't really making you weren't making any money. Like how did that feel? Like for me, I I'm driven by I guess the revenue stuff. Like that that really excites me. Of of course the impact, but for me the impact is a reflection of the revenue as well. If you know right. what I mean. So right. so how did that feel? Bad. Because it must be so tough. Like, I don't know how you could go through that. Like, that would be really hard for me.
1: I'll elaborate. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's very common out here, right? Like, a lot of consumer focused startups don't have any revenue for a really long time. And I just find that revenue is grounding. Like, I feel more stable if there's revenue. Because one, you get to call your own shots. That's right. But two, you know where the value is. Mm. And um that I really like. Now at Coach so me, we do have revenue. Like we're getting paid for changing people's lives. Like there's no better feeling in the world. I'm not like it's very clear when the ch- checks come in that we've done good work. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's the main thing for me that's a struggle is without revenue, I just feel at a loss uh often. So I would say I'm like I'm thrilled to be back to running a revenue-focused company. And I probably won't ever. Hopefully, this is my last company. I mean, that's always the hope. <laughs> but uh, regardless, I don't think I can't really imagine starting another company where revenue wasn't a key part of it. I'm curious. When you were starting, was there any like really tough feedback that you got?
0: Yeah, I remember when I was like showing the magazine to people because you know as a digital magazine on the app store the google play store i was showing it and and uh yeah people were just like you know what you're doing can't be done <laughs> uh you know would like richard branson want to speak to you or you know kind of things like that um yeah look we we got we got some some bad feedback but at the same time tony i think for me and in my world it's it's a lot different to how you guys think. And I'm start, like, I just came back from the States and I'm starting to, to, to capture, you know, what it means to think 10 or a hundred X bigger. Because when I started, I started, found a while I was working my full-time job and I built it up to replace my income, you know, and I thought that was just what I was going to do, like run this lifestyle business. But then I realized very quickly that it's so much more than that. And, you know, yeah, look, I could take on investment. I could grow it even faster, but I know I'm just taking it one step at a time, one step at a time. So, like, you know, I'm working on wanting to build a $10 million company. And I know you guys, you think $100 million, you know, half a billion dollar company, billion dollar company. And that's just so beyond me. So, you does that answer your to, question?
1: You have to pass through $10 million to get to $100 million. I think that's no. the, right? Like, that's the thing you have to remember that regardless of where you think you're going, you do have to get through today. And, you know, for me today was an interview, some product work, and three partnership meetings. Those three partnerships aren't going to make or break the company, but they're important steps towards being that much bigger company. You know, I, this is, like, it's very much a mindfulness practice, right? Like, and I think it's super hard for an entrepreneur to just, how can you live in the moment? Mm. And uh, you know, reevaluate the long term trajectory. But how can you live in the moment? I was thinking, you know, we we're kind of talking about the stress of a, a company that's not quite working. Mm. I remember at one point, and this kind of transitions a little bit into coaching that I've received along the way. But I remember at one point we were trying to raise money from VC. So we had, you know, we had great angel investors, including you know Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss and really great team of people that were well known and well respected in the industry mm. and we went to these venture capitalists and I, like seven or eight in a row said basically the same thing never to my face but always to the person that had introduced me they said team looks great product idea seems great but tony seems a little soft to be a ceo oh wow
0: that's a bit harsh ouch
1: yes. I mean, it's very much, a, it's a personal, like, it's a personal attack. I was mm. ready for this product will never work. You don't have enough traction. Like mm. that would have made a lot of sense to me. But yeah. this, like, I personally am not good enough for this company was super harsh. And this is what, one of the things I like about my career is that my career is the career ladder of a founder. Like I started as an individual contributor, then I became a manager, then I worked for other startups, then I bootstrapped a startup, then I got investors and did a traditional venture-backed startup. And along the way, probably didn't always look like a CEO. I wasn't like Mark Zuckerberg at 22, but I just kept proving to myself that if you do the work, kind of the personal development work, you absolutely can turn yourself into a you know, a great manager, a great leader, a great entrepreneur. I mean, certainly that's something I'm working towards every day. But it, that I see it in that path that there was a lot of really big improvements. So when I got that feedback from the VCs, I mean, first of all, I was like, I practically died when I heard that because mm. what it meant was that the company might just go out of business. Like, if we don't get an investment, we're going to die. Uh, and then, two, I was. I was worried. I mean, legit worried that I wouldn't be able to develop a, a killer instinct. Is how I thought of it. So I went to my coach. I said, "You know, I keep getting this feedback. What's going on?" He goes, "Tony, let me give, tell you the truth here. People are perceiving you as soft because you are soft." And I was like, "Oh my god!" This like it just gets worse and worse, right? Yeah. And um, and he, he actually had this way of framing it. That really, I feel like there's a pattern I see over and over again. He said, look, a lot of times the thing that got you here becomes the thing that's holding you back. So the way that I got to got through my career was being really smart, really knowing, really technical, really good at my job, really collaborative. But it never required me to be really firm or to really deal with other people that were particularly strong-willed. So I just like, I never really had to fight for anything because I could just outwork everyone. And so I, I asked my coach, his name is Jonathan, I asked him, well, you know, can I develop a killer instinct? I don't really, I think of myself as a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I thought what the VCs were looking for was like someone like Donald Trump, someone to just mm-hmm. like come in and be like ultra brash. And it's like shock. Yeah. Shock and awe. Right. Yeah. And thankfully, and this is where, like, one of the things a coach can really do is help you reframe the way you're thinking into a healthier way. And what we talked a lot about was, what does strength look like for me? And for me, the the easiest thing is, like, I'm just generally very grounded. And one thing that I do like working on is just knowing what my philosophies are, what what it is that I think and believe. And so the more that I worked on being grounded, which is mostly through meditation, and the more I worked on articulating, here are the things that I believe, that I'm firm on, the more that I became not so much brash, but free of weakness. And that's what I think of whenever I meet someone who's like way deep into mindfulness is they just, you can't bluff them because they don't get emotional. I mean, technically they get emotional, but they are so aware of those emotions that they never you know waver because of them. And so if I now if I'm talking to a VC like when we actually did raise money, the end step of it was that I was in a room full of seven VCs, the kind of the partner meeting. So all of the partners at this one firm were grilling me about the what we were going to do with the product and I like by that point I'd had months of training in meditation and also like really how to be a stronger leader. And I just like always completely unfazed in that meeting. And that that was a really big jump between Mm. apparently these early venture capitalist meetings where I think I was just like so wishy-washy. They asked me a hard question. I probably like got really nervous. And so, I mean, that's, that's a message I like to get out to all founders is, Hey, you know, however good you are today, you could be a lot better tomorrow, so don't worry about it.
0: Mm. It's all mastery, man.
1: Yeah, right. It's like the sort of the ten thousand hours thing. Mm. I mean, people out here really worship Steve Jobs, but yeah. one of the things I think of with Steve Jobs is: look, that guy was a CEO for a really long time.
0: So the oh, Steve yeah. Jobs
1: we know at Apple was a shitty. I can say shitty on this podcast, right? Of course. Especially about Steve Jobs. <laughs> it, it, his first stint at Apple was terrible. Not terrible I mean but it wasn't great you know most people thought he was a kind of a crummy manager and then eventually he got pushed out and then it's not like his second stint at Next step was um, successful I mean basically Apple had to buy him out and it's really only after 20 years of doing it he came to Apple and really I think knew what he stood for and could articulate it and knew how to to select for it in his management team and so yeah by the time he got to Apple The second time around, he was a really great CEO, but he put in a lot of hours. So to his credit, but also he had a lot of opportunity. And so I think to myself, I'm like, wow, I've been a CEO for seven years. I'm just getting started. I have a ton more growth to do. And uh, I think that's really the only healthy way to look at this job.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good, good point. It's all about, you know, just appreciating the journey and just, uh, knowing you're putting in the time towards mastery, right?
1: Right. Do you you use a a coach at all?
0: That's a really good question, and that's why I'm really excited. Another reason I'm really excited to speak to you, Tony, because, you know, I was saying to a friend, like, I have a lot of mentors, and I'm very blessed, you know, this amazing network that I've built up in a short period of time since starting Founder, and, you know, I always – I'm you know, if I have a massive problem, I go around the room to like 10 different people, you know, all of my mentors, friends, you know, you name it. And then I seem to just nut it out. And I always, you know, for the most part go in the right direction. And I said to my friend though, like, I think I need a coach like to, to take it to the next level. Like this, this network and the the amount of mentors I have and stuff, it'll only get me so far. And he's like, yeah, I think you're right. He's like, you know, I, I reckon I'm going to get a coach soon too. And uh, I've never had one like somebody that is committed, like fully, fully committed that we check in, you know, every couple of weeks or once a month and be like, this is what you need to do next. This is where you're at. This is like, you know, because with, I've found with, with mentors or, or friends or, or, you know, advisors of sorts, you kind of just check in with them when you need, but it's not really an ongoing you know, scheduled checkup and that person's really, really keeping you accountable. Cause that's, you know, that's why I see how you've gone from that segue between lift and now coach, because there's more accountability from the personable side and, you know, pushing you in the right direction. Is that, is that how that, that would you call it a pivot? Is that how the pivot came about to coach.me?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you would call it a pivot. At the beginning of this year, I'd actually almost call it – I would call it the third thing. You know, First, I built CrowdBind. Mm-hmm. Then I built Lyft. Then I built Coach on Me. It just happens that Coach on Me is in the same company as Lyft, so, and we used a lot of the Lyft assets in order to build it. Yep. But a lot of it is like it's a different founding team than the original Lyft team, and uh, it's just a much – In a lot of ways, it's so different that we just find it's healthier to think of it as a brand new thing where, you know, we're eight months into a brand new thing. Mm. But in the same mission of Lyft of how, you know, how do we help people perform at their best? And absolutely, when we looked at what it took, we saw almost this unfair advantage that some, a few handful of people in the world have. That unfair advantage is a coach. And so we call coaching the secret weapon of elite performers because everywhere I look, you know, when I pull back the, the curtain on someone who's really successful, it turns out they had some crazy unique access to a coach that no one else had access to. So you could say like uh, Michael Jordan was one of the first, Basketball players to really get into weight training, and his coach Tim Grover—that's that, his personal coach—that Michael Jordan paid out of pocket, not not the coach that the Chicago Bulls gave to him, right? Not part of the Chicago Bulls coaching staff. This is like on the side. He had a personal trainer helping to keep him strong and healthy for you know a really long career. And you could even looking back further than that. A lot of times you hear these stories about athletes. 'Cause I think there's a lot of press around athletes. But you know, when I would what I would say is most special about let's say Serena Williams, who's, you know, like has won the last four tennis opens in a row and, you know, when this when this uh goes live, might have won five in a row. <laughs> you know, what's special about her is the coaching that her dad did. Like and he did all sorts of weird stuff like that your normal coach doesn't do. I just heard the other day he felt like they were going to get uh, Serena and her sister were going to get a lot of like sort of cat calls from the, from the crowd. So he actually bust in people to stand around their practice and scream and curse them while they practiced, which I just like, <laughs> wow. it's nuts, right? and yeah. like you know, like, screaming racist things at them like the whole thing so those two kids when they hit the professional circuit i mean they were ready for anything and like going back even more you know like what's special about tiger woods well tiger woods had a dad who's probably the world's best coach of three-year-old golfers in the world and so yeah tiger put in a lot of work and you know certainly loved golf for a long time but he had this huge advantage like way that way ahead of everyone else, he was getting great golf training early on. And that just sort of reinforced itself. And so it's once you're the best ten year old golfer in the world, the best coach of ten year olds is going to ask to coach you and just went on and on and on. And so, you know, of course he turned into a top golfer. Mm. I mean, in hindsight, you wish he'd had some relationship coaching maybe. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's right.
1: I'm mean, a huge sports fan, so this is – I don't even know if people know all the gossip. But <laughs> anyway, it, his, his marriage sort of disintegrated after it came out that he was sleeping with dozens of hookers. I mean, like really like crazy personal life. But the the achievement on the sports side is, is legit, and that came from coaching. Even, you know, we're talking about Steve Jobs. Even he has a really famous coach, this guy.
0: Oh, really? Has,
1: this guy, Bill Campbell, used to be a football coach. For Columbia University in New York, and then became an executive coach for a lot of people out here in the Bay Area. Worked with Steve Jobs. I know. Um, I just met Phil Knight's old executive coach recently. Phil Knight, the founder and CEO, or former CEO now of Nike. But I like the athletic. I like the athletic framework because athletes assume they're going to have a coach. You know, the more that I meet elite athletes, like I always thought, wow, these people are very athletic. That's why they're athletes. Yeah. But when I meet them, the defining characteristic of the professional athletes is that if you present them with an advantage and say, hey, if you do this, you'll have an advantage. They just do it like there's zero hesitations. It's shocking when you say like, oh, hey, if you wear this Band-Aid on your nose, you'll be able to breathe better right? And boom, they're all doing it, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're just like, they have no hesitation about that Where It's like, you know, when I saw that Breed Rake right, strip, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I should use it. I even got some for free and I never wore them. And I think that's really, like, that ended up being the difference in a lot of ways. Is like every advantage that you can offer, they'll take it. And I think if, if you're in business, you should treat it the exact same way as if you're an athlete. And, you know, exec coaching and business is totally backwards. I always say, like, I joke, like, I didn't get my first coach until it was way too late, right? Like, why didn't I have an exec coach when I was 22 grooming me to be an executive, to be a CEO? I would have mm. been way more prepared if I'd started much earlier. And the way that exec coaching mostly works is that you don't get your first coach until you're already a CEO, and you're already a successful CEO because the, those coaches are expensive normally. So, like when I was bootstrapping CrowdMind, I wasn't going to hire an executive coach. I was, like I was only making twenty-five thousand dollars a year. Like where am I going to afford four hundred dollar a session coaching? This is one of our goals with Coachemy: is can we make coaching accessible to to everyone? Because there are so many great coaches out there; they're just hard to find. And if you do find them, they're often way too accessible. So we have these amazing coaches that would work f- with you for as little as $15 a week.
0: Yeah, wow. Tony, I, I have to say, you know, after this conversation, I'm jumping on coach.me and I'm getting myself a coach. You know you know how you use that Michael Jordan story? Like When me and my friend were talking about, like, should we need a coach or do we need a coach or do I need a coach? He was saying, you know, with Michael Jordan, if the coach told him to do it, he'd do it. And sometimes it's it's good to get that direction. But I have to ask, and this is something I'm dying to ask you, do you always have to do what your coach tells you to do? And then how do you know if that person is a good coach? Because, you, you know, that could be a very dangerous position where the coach tells you what to do and it's not the right move or, you know what I mean?
1: Right. I mean, we've all had that experience with advisors, right? It's mm. like just because the advice worked for them doesn't mean it's going to work for you.
0: That's right. Um,
1: so in a couple of things. In business coaching, there's much more of an emphasis on facilitating. So a lot of times the business coach, you're presenting a problem to the business coach, and the business coach is helping you frame it in a way where you play a really big role in coming up with the solution. So, you know, like, you don't come to your business coach and say, okay, here's the performance review on this person. Should I fire them or not? And they they don't go, yes. And that's the end of discussion, right? Mm. Like, they're going to say, well, what are your standards for keeping people? What are your options for if this person does go? Here are other things that I see other people doing at other companies. And to get, like, you just have a much, they're much more a partner with you. So you're not going to ever go too far, of course, because you're part of it. I mean, when you were in middle school, right? Like, I had a middle school basketball coach. I was 12 years old, 11 years old. Of course I was going to do what that coach told me to do. Like, I didn't know anything about the world, right? Hmm. But, like, you're a CEO right now, right? You're not going to get bluffed by someone. Like, you're much more worldly. You know a ton about what works and what doesn't work in your business. And so, this is actually why I think executive coaching works so well, is you, you basically you end up with two high-level people really having a high-level strategic conversation about the business and the organization that you're running. Mm-hmm. So, I never really worry about the wrong advice. There is this question of quality. Before coach at me, was a great question because you, the answer was, you have no idea. You have no idea who's good and who's bad. All you can work on is referrals. Like, do you have a yeah. friend who knows the coach, who worked with the coach and liked them? And even then, that person usually only worked with one coach. So you don't know. You might know that the coach is okay, but you don't know if they're the best. You don't know if the next coach you talk to might be better. So that's a problem. And here's how we solved it at Coach.me is we look at retention. And it turns out – so we've had – I think we've had about 600 coaches now who've had paying clients. And it turns out how long the client stays with them is an amazing predictor of how good the coach is. And we we back this up by actually talking to the clients and talking to the coaches and looking at the record of the coaching. But that retention rate for our top coaches is three times longer than our average coach. So if you ever search for a coach – on our system, the ones at the top of the search results, those are the best coaches. We ranked them based on how successful their clients are. And that just you could never do that before. But we have a complete record of every coaching interaction down to what people said to each other. And for that, for that reason, it's actually really easy for us to rank them. But what's surprising about the ranking is how broad that range is. So like a bad coach, the clients cancel on them right away. A mediocre coach, the clients tend to work out one problem and then stop with the coach. And then a great coach, you work out one problem and then you love the coach and you like look for other problems to work on together. And those coaches build really long-term relationships with their clients.
0: Mm, I see that.
1: Does that put you at ease at all?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, another question I have and, uh, This is something that uh, I think I saw in an article when I read about you a while back. I think I was on TechCrunch, maybe. Is it is very affordable, like super affordable? Yeah. How does that work, like from the coach's standpoint? If they are like a great coach, how does that make it in the best interest of them? Because for me, you know, I'd be happy to pay, you know, two hundred dollars a session or three hundred or four hundred. You know, you know what I mean. Like $15, $15 a week is very cheap, Tony. Like that's, that's nothing, man.
1: I know. Well, first of all, there's absolutely, if you want to, you can pay more. So mm-hmm. if this is really bothering anyone who's listening, believe me, we'll find <laughs> a way, we'll find a way that, to give you even more value for more money. You know, we picked the price based on testing. We picked a price that would get the most coaches to the most people. And then we double check that against whether or not we could provide great coaching at that price. The one half of the answer is just, obviously more people buy at fifteen than at twenty, and a lot more people buy at fifteen than at fifty. But the other thing that's sort of the the good news is that there's a ton of people in the world who want to provide coaching, and if if're an if you're a coach in San Francisco or New York, which is where I split my time between those two cities. Yeah, you absolutely have to be charging 100 200 or $400 an hour just to live in those places. Mm. One of our top coaches is in rural Texas. She's a CEO of a 250-person organization but wants to get back, has like learned a ton in that CEO role but wants to help other people. We have another top coach in Ohio, top coach in South Africa right now, I think the economics are just different once you do this at scale and you're actually able to rank the coaches. We're able to spot lots and lots of top coaches who that and certainly enough for us to keep this current price point, which I agree is a great deal. You're getting a hundred dollars of coaching for $15. I mean, it, the the value that we're able to get you is incredible for that price point.
0: Yeah. It's a um, deal, man. Like, I think of your platform a little bit like Clarity, but for coaches yeah. and more of an ongoing support type system.
1: Sure, is that is, sure. that
0: is that a good way to kind of say it's in the same kind of area?
1: I, absolutely. I, I feel like if I'm talking to a tech insider, that I'll, I'll talk, we'll talk about the freelance economy, and you know, there's actually a range. So on the one hand, some startups that you know, it's like you have the service end of it, which is Uber. You know, like I heard about a house cleaning startup where the people that were getting sent to your house, some of them were literally homeless. So that's like, that's one end. And then the other end is these coaches who are these high-level professionals, you know, former CEOs and CIOs and CTOs. So we call that the elite end of the freelance economy. And obviously clarity is in there. I call Upwork, which used to be known as ELance and odesk mm. say that they're in there they can be in there too yes. this the professional end you know the thing about clarity which i think is like true of a lot of the self-improvement world is that a lot of people know how to give you the advice not that many people know how to help you follow the advice and so like after your call on clarity how are you going to turn that into something that you do every day well, that's what a coach is for
0: yeah, I mean, our that's coaches so actually spotting. literally yeah, so check
1: spotting. in with you every day. And, yeah. it, you know, that's not a, a knock on clarity. I mean, if you read Tim Ferriss' book, you learned a ton. But then what did you do the day after you read his book? What were you doing 10 days after you read his book? That's the role of the coach. And yeah. so in a lot of ways, the coach is, the, is like 90% of the value, right? Like you, you don't get value from reading the book. You get value from putting it into practice. And, you know, that's
0: why we're so gung-ho on coaching. Yeah, look, you've made it an absolute no-brainer. I've got to get a coach. <laughs> you've answered, awesome. you answered my question. So, yeah, I'm going to jump on coach.me. Look, we have to work towards wrapping up, Tony. Uh, you were definitely right that uh, we would go over time and I could talk to you all day, man. I'm really enjoying this conversation. couple of things. Sure. Let's talk a little bit more on the dark side of entrepreneurship. Tell us about, you know, Take us back to one moment that's been one of your toughest moments. I know that you said you lived on a salary of $25,000. That would be really tough. To take us back to a real moment that just was so tough where you thought to yourself of giving it all up. Or well, Have you ever thought of giving up?
1: Well, I mean, this is absolutely one of my hacks for not giving up was to work on something that was meaningful. So I feel like even if I lost everyone's money, every day that I came to work, We help tens and hundreds and millions of people now make their lives better. So, like, I was never going to feel guilty about the money we lost because the net impact on the world was really good. I am thinking about one moment in particular. It's just, you know, this company, like, CoachMoney is really a second swing, but within the same company. And so not everyone wanted to go along with it. I mean, most people had signed up for one thing, you know, the Lyft kind of mission, you know, we put a lot of work into it and it just didn't work. And I think people felt like, you know, we'd failed and it was time to move on. So I went to our investors and I said, hey, you know, I think there's something to do here as more of a platform. I want to do it. Can you guys help us out? Can you can you give us a little bit more money? And so I basically pitched them on a small inside round, which we that's the money that we still have in the bank right now, although we're like just edging up unprofitable, which is a huge switch for us. But so as I'm pitching these investors, at the same time, my co-founder was thinking that he didn't want to continue, that it just was kind of the opportunity cost was so great. This wasn't even necessarily what he wanted to do, that Koshami is not that much a tech company. I mean, less about the build-in product and more about staffing that product. But he didn't tell me. And so I I pitched to our investors. They said yes, but they said, like, barely. Like, my Bijan, who's on my board, said, listen, the partner said yes, but they all said, you know, this is, like, it's not going well, right? There's no more money after this. Like, this is the last chance. you got to figure it out. But they said yes. So basically, the day after I sent them my bank info and said, hey, all right, this is great, the terms are great, can you wire the money? My co-founder came to me and said, I don't want to continue like literally right before the money got wired to me. I would just say that that was like probably the lowest moment for me because like we had gone from, I'd saved the company to as positive, they weren't very wired the money. I mean, first of all, I had to tell them I couldn't just sit on the news and wait for the money to get wired because So much of our money comes from my friend, Evan Williams, who had been my boss back in the day, had been the Twitter CEO, Is on our board, helped me design this. Like, I would never hide something from him. And honestly, I probably wouldn't hide it from any partner, any of my investors, although I know some founders would. But that just like, there was zero chance that I was going to sit on this news. So I, I knew I had to call them, and I was positive they would pull out, because that's what I would do. I mean, absolutely, if I was the investor and I had got that news, I would have pulled out. So I I texted uh, Bijan. I forget what I said, but he, after we ended up talking, he was like, When I saw your text, I basically thought either you have cancer or your co founder quit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's just like only two things that it could be. And uh, thankfully, I mean, I just have really good investors because they said, Well, you know, look, this is really bad news you, like you just going to bum you out, you're going to have to work harder, but it doesn't change the opportunity. and uh, we believe in you. let's just move forward with it. So they didn't change the terms, nothing. They just wired the money the next day, and we went on. But I mean, having those conversations with my board that like, look, you know, my co-founder's leaving, This going to be tough." It was so scary. And turned out not to be anything, it turns out. And I'm still on good terms with my co-founder. Like a lot of ways, he did the right thing for him. And I can't fault him. I think think his reasoning was right on. And actually, he saw things in a lot of ways more clearly than I did. He tried to convince me that he wouldn't be a good fit because we weren't really that technical of a company anymore. And uh, I was like, no, 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 we really need you. But the reality is if I had 10 people to hire tomorrow, Eight of them would be on the business and content side, for sure.
0: Yeah, okay. But so it was As he a, predicted. Yeah. So it was a blessing in disguise.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I like him so much. I hate to call it a blessing, but yeah. we may do. And, you know, in fact, it's good for everyone. I think the investors, they get their money back. Coach me feels like a huge thing. Coaching it right now is a $9 billion industry, which is crazy because, like, how would you even get a coach is how yeah. I feel. The, the, like I, I agree with
0: you. That, that is so true. Like, that's what me and my friend were going through. You only go through referrals.
1: Right, right. It's just such a nuts industry. So I think of that as an industry that's just artificially small. And so when we talk about a lower price point, what we're talking about is making that $9 billion industry a $90 billion industry. Like, there should be a, 10 times more people with coaches. We just have to make them a lot more accessible and that's what we're trying to do right now
0: awesome well look tony i have one last question and that is you you're you're very blessed your your network is is amazing you you mentioned Uh that evan's really good friends of yours and and you've got an amazing network you you deep within the bay area what are like the top three things that you've noticed amongst all of these super successful entrepreneurs in your network and you know what are the top three things that that our audience needs to be focusing on?
1: Well, one, I know a lot more people that are nice or like, you know, they're real people. Like, Ev is a great person. And so I think when you only experience entrepreneurs through the news, it's easy to think that they're all like Donald Trump, right? Maybe even Donald Trump is really nice behind the scenes with his staff. But that just that public persona is bullshit. The, per- the entrepreneurs that I know, are just really, really good people. And almost the better they are as people, the better they are at attracting a team around them. And I think Ev is a great example of that. Two, this is I just hear more and more about meditation as a performance practice. Mm-hmm. Like it's not about spirituality, or it could be about spirituality if that's what you want. But the people I run into meditate because they want they want to find a way to train their brain. And it's the most generalizable way to arrive at work strong, focused, and present. And the third, it's a good one, sort of counterintuitively. Well, maybe this isn't actually intuitive, but I just find that people who are successful are really focused on the quality of the product, like way more than you would think is logical. Because, you know, it's like in some ways, if, if people will buy it, right? Then that should be good enough. And I think that there's probably a lot more word of mouth going on in the world than you realize. So, you know, you might think, oh, my channel is this, like as long as I'm on store shelves at Best Buy, I'm in good shape, right? But it's actually, it's the person who bought it once and then, and then told their friends. That's really what's driving, I think, a lot of the sales. And so I'm just shocked by the level of detail on the product and product experience side that people put into who I otherwise wouldn't really see. So, you know, it just, like, even like Tim Ferriss, right? Like, his whole thing about how to build an audience is not to post to Facebook 12 times a day. Like, I've seen articles that say, the ideal number of times that you should post to Twitter or Facebook is like 10 or 12. And this thing is like, no, that's crazy. What you want to do is create content that is incredibly high quality. So he'll put out these 30-page articles that are just like almost mini books, right? And he's giving that stuff away for free. And I've worked with him on written pieces before, and his attention to detail is through the roof. I mean, not like the, the grammar, the logic. Like if you make a claim, you have to back it up. And then just also the kind of the sales psychology of it. Like how does it connect with the person? I mean, he he's amazing at that, and that's true of pr- practically every successful person I've run into.
0: Yeah, well, that's some great insight. Yeah, so look, anyone listening to this, uh, definitely check out the interview we did with uh, the founder of Headspace, which is a brilliant oh, yeah. guided meditation app. And uh, I just wanted to touch on that, you know, nice guy thing because. The late uh, Dave Goldberg, I interviewed him in the early days and one of the best pieces of advice that he shared was there's a lot of assholes out there. If you're nice to people, it'll go a long way. Right. uh, That's really sat well with me because I consider myself a nice guy too, Tony. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But look, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. This has been an awesome conversation. Where's the best place to find you?
1: Oh, well, obviously, you've got to come to the website, Me or download the app, Coach sent me. Practically everything we talked about is just like right there on the homepage. And uh, that's where people should go.
0: Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Grenna Van Reel